If you have a Bible, um, will you please open it to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. Um, you know, with the, all the superhero movies that are out these days, and I think there's like a thousand of them this summer, and then maybe going to go on for the rest of eternity that we see superhero sequels. Uh, we are in a sequel. Um, there's this, okay, so we're reading 2 Thessalonians. It's the sequel of this great book. Uh, it's in the New Testament. It's called First Thessalonians. And uh, so First Thessalonians, we read about this new church in this town called Thessalonica. They're new Christians, and it's a bunch of people who just found their new life and their new identity in Christ. They converted from irreligion or uh, religion to following Jesus. And uh, so we like continue on with these people, Paul's second letter to these new Christians in a new church plant um, called, uh, well, it's the church in Thessalonica in this town. The series then is also a sequel. So the name of the series is The Return, because we're talking about the return of Christ, The Church for the Future, Part 2. The other names for the series were uh, The Return, 2 Thessalonians, This Time It's Personal, or whatever other sequel name would make it sound exciting. But uh, yeah, so we're continuing continuing on with this church, and we have very particular subject matter, and today we talk about um, the Antichrist. I've never preached on the Antichrist before. Uh, John calls him the Antichrist. Here in our passage, Paul calls him the man of lawlessness. But uh, really interesting topic for us to talk about, about what it looks like to live in a world with um, lawlessness and the Antichrist and his work being around today. So um, we've said earlier in the series that superheroes and our fascination with superheroes, uh, the one thing that's really unique about being a Christian is that you can leave the movie theater with more hope, not disappointed because the cool story arc is over and real life hits, but you can leave the movie theater with more hope knowing that Captain America, Superman, they're all fictional superheroes that point to a real life superhero and savior that we have in Jesus Christ. All of those things, the the, the stories that compel our hearts and make us want to applaud in the theater, they all point to a truer and better hero that we have in Jesus. And Paul is constantly reminding this new church in Thessalonica about the future hero, the hero we have today as a savior, but the future superhero we have in Christ's return when he comes, when he returns to destroy evil and um, commence our eternal relationship with him in the new heavens and the new earth. So we're talking about the Antichrist. The current above the discussion on the Antichrist is our hope we have in Jesus. And the undercurrent is Paul's command to the church to not be deceived. The hope we have overarching this discussion is the return of Jesus, the future glory, glorious return that we have in our future with him. And the undercurrent is really the encouragement that I give you and that Paul gives us this morning. Don't be deceived. Don't let yourself be deceived by false teaching or by other foolishness that kind of creeps into the Christian life. So let's read it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, 
so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So our first challenge is not be deceived. Um, So we need to talk about the man of lawlessness. We need to talk about the power of lawlessness at work today and the destruction of lawlessness in Christ's return. The man of lawlessness, the power of lawlessness, and the destruction of lawlessness. So first, some context. If you look in verses one and two, you'll see that the church has been deceived by false teaching. They saw Paul. Paul visited the church in Thessalonica at some point in his life because he mentions it in the book of Acts, or it's mentioned in the book of Acts and he mentions it elsewhere. But in verses one and two, he writes to them saying, concerning the, Lord, the Lord's return and are being gathered to him. And you'll remember if you read 1 Thessalonians that in chapter four, Paul, writes, or Paul uh, told the church, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, he says in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. With the voice of an archangel and the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air and so be with the Lord forever. So Paul already told them, when Christ returns, we will be with him, caught up with him in the air and kind of like live triumphantly with him in the air when he ushers in this new kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. So you can imagine these new Christians, they heard a teaching supposedly from Paul. And Paul says, I don't know what it was, whether it was a prophecy or a letter or by word of mouth. If somebody rolled into church and said, hey, I just talked to Paul. But the teaching was that Christ had already come back. Well, what's the implication? Well, if Christ already came back and we're not currently on a cloud, then we have been left behind. You can imagine it would throw everything in your new Christian life into doubt. You would think, okay, if Jesus came back and we're not united with him, then did Jesus lie to us? Maybe uh, God's not as graceful as we thought. Maybe we didn't act good enough and therefore we're not saved. Or they would doubt, maybe um, Paul lied to us. Or, you know, it brings to mind that um, people who are in cults, if you ask them, hey, are you in a cult? They never say yes. Maybe they thought, did we just join a cult? No, wait, it's like the number one rule of life, don't join a cult, you know? And they're thinking like, I think we're in a cult now because this thing didn't happen. Jesus returned. People are seeing him apparently face to face, but we're not saved. You can imagine the next Sunday at church being a very disappointing Sunday, you know? Like, welcome to Ambassador Church. Jesus came back. Sorry. Uh, VBS is coming up. And <laughs> the all church retreat. It would, be, it would throw everything in your Christian life into chaos. It would destroy the church. And you can imagine by Paul is like very quickly in the letter saying, no, 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 your identity is in Christ, your salvation is in Christ, and Christ has not come back. And the funny thing about the passage is that Paul's big hopeful message to the church is, hey, keep hope alive because the Antichrist is coming. He says, if you read Daniel 7, if you read Ezekiel, if you, uh, if you heard the words of Jesus, you know that there is a person to come who has not been revealed yet. That person will be, will be revealed, it says in our passage, in the rebellion. And then Christ will come back. And so you know he hasn't come back yet because you know we haven't seen or met the man of lawlessness. Everything in the life of the church was so new. It makes sense why they f- fell into this false teaching. I mean, they already gave up their lives, their, their old traditions, their old religious commitments to become a Christian. And then persecution started hitting the church so fiercely in Thessalonica 
they must have thought Jesus is going to come back very quickly because when you're in the middle of persecution, when your loved ones are being killed, when church is being disrupted, you're, you're being accused of uh, crimes because of your faith, it's hard to imagine the church even going on. And so as persecution ramped up, their dependence on the return of Christ ramped up and it made them ripe for false teaching in this area. So that's the context. Now we see uh, that it's going to be an important question for the church to say, okay, who is the man of lawlessness and what should we look out for? Um, If you look in verse 2, Paul's encouragement to the church is, don't be unsettled or alarmed by any kind of teaching come to you. Notice Paul is calming down the church and he's like interjecting truth into emotional reactive thinking. He's calming the church by saying, we need to found ourselves in the authoritative like truth of who God is so we can continue to have the hope that we need to persevere through life today and hope for the future in Jesus Christ. And the man of lawlessness is going to disrupt those things. It is Paul teaching them about end times theology. Uh, If I can teach you a fancy theology word, uh, you know, I'm always wanting to make you guys sound smart if you're ever in a Bible discussion. The term is eschatology. It's the study of the eschaton, the final things, the last days. And in Paul's writings, after the ascension of Jesus into heaven and before his return, that is the last days mentioned uh, all over the place in scripture. We're in the last days and Paul is teaching us eschatology. But He's not teaching us eschatology as some weird theology pet project. He's not teaching us end times theology so that we'll guess about the times and the circumstances about when and does, is it Israel or what does Israel have to do? Should we donate money to the Israeli government for something or whatever? It's like he's not trying to speculate on all of the circumstances and the times of who the man of lawlessness is or every detail about the end times. That's not his preoccupation. He doesn't even give too much detail here. He just is saying, Listen, you need to know this. There is a person to come. It's referenced in scripture from the Old Testament so you can continue to have hope. Paul's intent here is very practical, very loving to the people that he knows to teach them eschatology, but it's in no way uh, the kind of eschatology you see on um, YouTube. Have you guys ever been, speaking of on like, you, you watch YouTube and then YouTube recommends another video for you? And you go, okay, I'll watch that one too. And then it recommends another video and you go, all right. And then all of a sudden, like six months went by, you look up and you have a long beard and you lost 30 pounds. You've just been on YouTube for the last couple of months. Anybody else? Okay. So um, I fell into a deep dive this week on YouTube videos about the end times. And it's, they're all the same. It's like old school MIDI keyboard sounds like bum, 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 bum. The man of lawlessness, clip art from the 70s, bah, 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 bah. Barack Hussein Obama, bah, 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 bah. Donald J. Trump. And it's like some weird kook. You know, I look at the number of views on the video and I'm the second of two videos. <laughs> People have watched the video, you know. There's all kinds of crazy ideas out there about the end times and people have said it's uh, every political leader that they don't like or the Catholic Church, what have you. Paul is not trying to assign the man of lawlessness, he's trying to re-inject hope into uh, Christians. And the same thing is true for us. We should see what this passage really says about the end times and try and get out of it what we can and what God is giving us. But keep in mind, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul writes to the church already, brothers and sisters, about the times and the dates, we don't need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
You'll know about it when you know. That's kind of what Paul is saying about the end times. You'll know when you know. I'm, I'm reminded um, when I was dating my now wife, Hannah, I had this real like uh, wholesome father-son moment. My dad and I were sitting on a park bench eating ice cream together and I was dating Hannah and um, I said, Dad, how do you know when you're in love and ready to get married? And he said, well, son, this is how my dad talks when he's being all wholesome or like when he's being a cool dad. Well, son, you'll know when you know. And I thought, That's, I knew you'd say that. You'll know when you know. And I suspect if 1 Thessalonians 5 is true and there's a trumpet call of God and he's triumphantly reigning and ruling on the earth, you'll know when you know. If all of a sudden you start floating up into a cloud, you'll know. And when, when the reign of Christ happens, you know, and there's a new heavens and new earth, you'll know when you know. So what do we know about the man of lawlessness? Well, we know in uh, chapter 2, verse 3 here of Second Thessalonians, it says there will be a rebellion that will occur and the man of lawlessness will be revealed. I don't think we need to separate those two into separate events. What's the rebellion and then what's the revelation? I think they're the same thing. And it's a person, a guy, who is, uh, in the end, Paul even reminds us, doomed to destruction. Other prophecies indicate that there will be a military, uh, he'll have a military associated with his name or with his cause. He will challenge intellectual discourse um, some passages in Daniel 7 uh, say that he might uh, create new holidays or change calendars. He'll be an intellectual and have a discourse that's persuasive to religious and irreligious communities. He'll affect worship and devotion, and he's in league with Satan. That's what we know about the guy. And if you look in verse 4, the most dastardly of the evil things that he does, not just injustice, not just the lack of human life, not just um, valuing things that are destructive in the world, but in verse 4 it says, he will oppose and exalt himself over God and put himself in the temple. Uh, Bible scholars are trying to figure out, okay, what does it mean that he puts himself in the temple? Does it mean that he sets himself up in the hearts of Christians because we're the temple, like Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3? Uh, is it uh, the, the man of lawlessness setting himself up in the church and becoming influential in Christian circles? Or does it mean the literal temple in Jerusalem? Uh, I don't know. It's hard to tell. And Paul certainly doesn't answer that question for us. Here's my question. Do you think it's going to be one guy who wears a t-shirt that says Antichrist? Probably not. Do you think it's going to be just one guy who pops up and all of a sudden just assumes power over militaries and power over uh, the world? No. In order to be that kind of, uh, have that kind of influence and be that influential, you have to not just be one person who's sh sharp or persuasive. You have to create a culture. And if you create a culture, it has to be subtle. People have to agree with you in your ungodly ideas. People have to, to uh, compromise on their existing morality and adopt a new one. People are going to have to wear your shirt. People are going to have to hold the banner for your cause. It's going to be a subtle, long drift into lawlessness that is a culture created by the man of lawlessness. Now already, I'm, I'm, I've never preached on the Antichrist before, but I start, I'm starting to sound like the weird old preachers that are about the man of lawlessness. Please forgive me if I'm starting to sound alarming. I'm just saying, you're, he's not going to wear a sign that says Antichrist. It's going to be a subtle drift. And so the implication for us as Christians is we have to be discerning, wise, and lawful Christians that worship and exalt Christ in our hearts so that when anything tries to assert itself as a savior, anything tries to replace the goodness or the greatness or the gloriousness of God, we'll recognize it. 
and really the rest of our sermon is just applying this idea. How do we now fight lawlessness in our lives and in our church? And how do we protect God as the Savior of our church and of this group of Christians? How do we stay on point with our theology and our thinking so that we don't drift into being fooled and being deceived like Paul is saying? He's saying, don't let yourself be deceived in the passage. The deceiving is not coming from you. His encouragement is to say, don't let yourself be deceived by someone else, specifically not someone in league with Satan, which is stated later in our passage. So it's more important for us to assume that that kind of stuff is going to creep into our culture, creep into our church, creep into Christian circles, and affect the way we live as Christians. In, uh, in superhero movies, there's something, uh, in some of the lower-rated superhero movies, there's something that uh, movie reviewers call a big baddie. Has anyone ever heard of a big baddie? It's people saying, like, sometimes you read a book, sometimes you watch a movie, and the bad guy is just super bad, right? He wears an outfit full of black spikes, and you think to yourself, that can't be sustainable as an, an outfit, you know? <laughs> Do bad guys not wear sweats? They have to wear something very black and very dark, and they have to laugh like, wah ha ha you know? Like, they don't laugh like normal, apparently. Big baddies are one-dimensional bad guy characters that don't really have any complexity. They're not compelling people. And chances are that evil creeping itself into the church is not going to be a big baddie. It's going to be something much more subtle. And you'll notice in verse 7 that there is a power of lawlessness that is not just at work in the person of lawlessness, but is in the world today. So skipping ahead from our passage today, we see in verse 7, the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. And it's actually being held back by God until Jesus' return. So as bad as the world gets, you can praise God that he is actively holding back and restraining the power of lawlessness so it doesn't take over the world. To give us opportunities to be spirit-led and work for justice in our culture and in our society, God is holding that back, but it is still at work today. And John writes the same thing about the Antichrist. If you look in 1 John 4, 3, he says, every spirit that does not confess Jesus isn't... uh, that doesn't confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now already in the world. In 1 John 2.18, uh, John says, you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many, many Antichrists have come. I want to point out a few things that cultural commentators and Bible commentators are saying might be the source of lawlessness in our culture today. My big question for you is, do you think this is something that uh, might be affecting you? Might be effect- even if you believe in Christ, might be creeping into your uh, Christian life. One is another fancy theological term, uh, Christian antinomianism. The Greek word for law is nomos. Antinomianism is a Christian belief that says, because God has been graceful to me and God is gracious and he's forgiven me, Therefore, the law doesn't have hold on my life anymore, and that changes how serious I need to be about obeying God. It would be, uh, nobody says, I'm a Christian antinomian, but it does creep in when you say, uh, I'm the kind of edgy Christian that drinks and appreciates whiskey and that sort of thing, and so therefore I have license to overdrink. So I'm not a drunk, I'm a Christian who's been saved from, uh, from that. So it's a, a license to sin. Or it might creep into your life by saying, business is business, so my faith in my personal life Jesus. But in business, business is business. You got to make the decisions you got to make. Everyone's kind of dog eat dog, stepping over each other. And so I keep my business life separate from my Christian life. 
Christian antinomianism. And I don't want to shame anyone, but, you know, sometimes greed, drunkenness, uh, you know, pleasure and, and sexual ethics can creep in to create a lawless Christian worldview that says, because I'm forgiven, because I'm loved by God, therefore I'm freed up to kind of make the decisions that I want. And in, in that scenario, don't you see that we're kind of guilty of putting ourselves in the center of the temple? Because we're making ourselves and our pleasures and our desires to be the center of worship or to be the thing that we put our hope in. So not just that, but there's other theological lawlessness I want to point out. You know, it creeps in. If you hear a pastor tell you um, that he's the mediator and that he has the secret spiritual mojo, and if you come to him, then he'll be able to really give you the thing that you need in your Christian life, that's spiritual lawlessness. You're, you're throwing out the authority the authoritative truth of God for whatever cool thing this, this preacher might be able to give you. If you worship the miracles that God can do over the God of the miracles, it's Christian lawlessness. If you elevate um, a certain denomination or you study your Bible so much you start to love your Bible more than the God of the Bible, it's Christian lawlessness. Anything that asserts itself as Savior and puts itself over God is lawlessness creeping into the Christian life. And I think the greatest form of lawlessness that creeps into our culture is Christians saying, um, not, not saying, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to keep doing it, but saying, who is to say what's right and wrong? There's a trend in, in Christendom, there's a trend in our culture that says, everyone should be free to decide what's right and wrong for themselves, because after all, truth is somewhat relative to the people who believe it. It's not, it's not breaking a law, it's just throwing out the law. And in fact, it's not just throwing out a law, it's saying the real authority in the world is my personal decision-making. And it creeps into Christianity because we start, to te- we start to treat our theology and what we think about God as though the authoritative truth in the world is whatever I decide is permissible in my own mind. So you would say, here's the kind of eschatology that I like, and here's the kind of salvation theology I like, and then here's the preachers that I like, and it's all catered towards the real authority in our Christian lives which is what I want to be true. Like, you know you're worshiping the real God if he upsets you. I mean, it stands to reason if God is real and God has opinions and God is a, has a, a personhood, he's not just some ethereal force uh, of power in the universe, but he has a personality and has, he has truth that he's asserting into your life. There's gonna be times when you read the Bible and you go, I don't like that. If I were God, I would do it differently. If anything, that's a test that you're reading. You're actually open to the real God because it means you haven't made the God up in your own mind. It's not a God made up after your own image. You're acting as a creation in God's image. That's why the church should be full of dialogue to say, is this what, really what God says? And lo- look at other authors and look at other passages. And what does he say about gender? What does he say about sexual ethics? What does he say about abortion? What's he say about our role in society and, and, and the government? There should be a dialogue that's constantly going in the church. And if it ruffles your feathers, then yeah, because we're trying to get to know the real God and be honest about the fact that you go, "Ah, that rubs against my culture. And so some Eastern cultures don't like it when Jesus says, hate your father and mother and love me. And some Middle Eastern cultures say turning the other cheek seems like a, a disrespectful thing to do. It seems like it's dishonoring. And some Western cultures say, how dare God intervene in my sexuality? Every group of people in every single time have something that if they come to God honest, will say, I don't like it. That, that changes my cultural assumptions and it ruffles my feathers. 
That's how you know you're really open to what God is really like. And then if you are therefore open to a authoritative law of God, you might actually be freed up to get over your cultural assumptions, get over the lawlessness in our culture today to actually know what the real God is like. We are, in a sense, as Christians saying, there is an authoritative capital T truth, and that if you don't believe it, you're missing out, and truth is not relative to the individual. And if that sounds closed-minded, or if it sounds like it would even fuel bigotry, understand that Jesus is one of the most graceful people, well, not one of the most, he's the most graceful person who's ever lived. Nobody really accuses Jesus of being a bigot. And Jesus spoke about the law almost more than anyone. Jesus was subject to the law. He said not one mark or stroke of a pen from the law will go away because of, to paraphrase, this new grace and covenant that we have in him. But not only Jesus, um, you know, you can argue with Jesus, but you can't argue with Martin Luther King. And Martin Luther King, in his letter from Birmingham jail, said in 1963, well, I'll give you more context. So people accused Martin Luther King of being unlawful because the things that he was telling people to do were against American law. They were against segregation laws. He was being unlawful because what he was fighting for was civil disobedience. And so while he was in jail, he writes this letter in response to the accusation that he was being unlawful. He said, a just law is a man-made code that squares with the actual moral law, the law of God. And then he quotes Thomas Aquinas. He says, to put it in the words of Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law then is a human law that is not rooted in the eternal law of natural, uh, the eternal law and natural law. That's what Martin Luther King says. He's saying, yeah, there's a capital T truth. And my submission to the truth that is authoritative over everyone else's opinion is what's motivating me to fight for equal rights, to fight for human life, to fight for the good of all people. So you can't make the accusation that if Christians think they're the only ones who have the truth, therefore they're going to be bigoted or closed-minded or treat other people poorly. Sure, that can be a motivation for people to do that. But Jesus loved the law. He submitted to the law. He was the only one to obey the law perfectly. And when Martin Luther King and Jesus agree, boy, we better pay attention. They, they were saying, yes, there is a capital T truth. It's not subjective. And when you really believe that truth, it will give you the motivation and the power to love people with grace, to, to stand firm and be countercultural at times, but to, uh, in the end, fight for equal rights, to fight for loving people, to have even a dialogue with people who disagree. And last thing on this, I feel like I'm on a soapbox here, but the last thing I want to mention is that lawlessness can creep into the Christian world by, into conservative and liberal Christian circles. What I mean is you can be totally conservative on your view of sexual ethics or gender or marriage, and you'll know that you're Christian perspective is actually kind of bigotry if it's not rooted in Scripture. If it's not rooted, for instance, if you say, I see in Scripture a design that God has created that's good for, uh, between man and woman, that's good for parenting, it's good for society, and it's good for relationships, and there's like a beautiful complementary relationship between men and women, and that's part of God's design. That's very different than saying, I think people who disagree with me on that issue are evil, and they're just trying to ruin our society. And I know that's common because I'll talk to people who have changed their perspective because they met someone who disagreed with them and they said, did you know that they're really nice? Did you know there's people who are in other religions who are actually very kind people? 
And so they went from believing that Jesus was the only way to knowing God to believing that all religions are equally valid paths to God simply because they met someone of another religion and said, did you know they believe their beliefs as sincerely as I do? Well, okay, so you went. You changed from a traditional Christian perspective on something to something else. But, and you might have thought you went from closed-minded to open-minded. But in actuality, you went from lawless to lawless because the real authority in both of those scenarios is my assumptions that are rooted in my decision on what's true in the world. Because if that's your reasoning to switch parties, <laughs> to switch teams, to change your theology, if it's not rooted in I search the scriptures, I'm seeking to glorify God with my personal beliefs, then it's just lawless. Okay, I'm done. Third point. The third point is this. That... Um, there will be a destruction of lawlessness that happens. We look forward to a day that Jesus will destroy all injustice. And it says in verse eight of chapter two that he'll do it with the breath of his mouth and with his, the splendor of his coming. Let's read it. Chapter two, verse eight. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Keep in mind, in Genesis 1, you know, God creates with a word. Part of the theology in Genesis 1 is that God is so powerful, he doesn't have to sum up the power to create a tree. He just says it and it appears. And so it's fitting now in creating the new Eden, the new heavens and the new earth, that Jesus will destroy all evil and usher in a new kingdom, a new Eden, with the breath of his mouth. It's the most passive way to defeat the man of lawlessness. He shows up on the scene and evil is vanquished. Have you guys ever been in one of those superhero movies and all of a sudden the bad guy dies and everyone in the theater starts to applaud? <laughs> like, who are you applauding? <laughs> it's just a screen. Have you guys not had this? Where it's the, the, the triumph of the movie and then people go, woo! You know, way to go, Iron Man. You know, you did it. It doesn't even take, like, there's not even a battle. It's just a breath of his mouth. And just the sheer splendor of his presence eradicates the man of lawlessness. So let me lay a, a, a theological point on you that, uh, track with me. Jesus will be our savior, but he is our savior. We have an already not kingdom of God in the world. So he is the king of kings right now, but he hasn't fully ushered in the kingdom that he will bring when he returns. And so we have an already not yet kind of king in Jesus. And the same thing is true with the man of lawlessness. We have an already power of lawlessness in the world that we have to fight today. And we have this person who will come and will be revealed that is the man of lawlessness, that will be the anti-savior, the parody of the savior. He'll do everything exactly the opposite of what we'll have in Christ's return. So because we have an already not, not yet king and an already not yet anti-king, it stands to reason that we, though we know he will destroy the man of lawlessness in the future, we can destroy it today in our lives. We can destroy lawlessness by the very same principle that Jesus will destroy it in his coming, and that is by the splendor of his coming. That's exactly how hope works Hope is a thing that you have today 
that affects your life today, rooted in a, a sure thing that is in the future. We use hope as uh, wishful thinking and that sort of thing. Hope in the Bible is saying, put your, br- your brain and set it on this future that you will have in Jesus and let it change you in your life today. And we do the same thing. So in verse four of this passage, we see that the, the man of lawlessness will receive worship. And we know that today we have lawlessness that's constantly fighting for our worship. And there are things in our lives that are constantly fighting to be at the center of the temple, so to speak. Like our job or pleasure or the approval of others or success or comfort. There's constantly lawless things that are not rooted in the truth of God that are fighting for our worship. And the way to eradicate it in your life is by setting your hope on the splendor of his coming or just to set your hope on his splendor. I've heard it said, uh, I think I can remember all of them. I've heard it said that if you want a, a reminder on how good God is to motivate your heart to obey him and to live for him today, remember that he's good. Remember that he's great. Remember that he's glorious and remember that he's gracious. And if you find yourself on your way to work and you're anxious about something or, or you're dealing with your kids or you're dealing with a relationship or you're lonely, Remind yourself of his splendor, of his goodness, of his, of his greatness, of his gloriousness, meaning he's worthy of worship. And remind yourself of his graciousness when you need forgiveness. See him as splendid. And to the extent that we see him as splendid in our lives, when something else creeps in to receive our worship, we'll say, no, 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 no. You can't compete with a splendid savior that I have in Jesus Christ. When something asserts itself in the church where, you, where they're saying, you don't really need to trust Jesus as your savior, you can do it yourself. You'll kick it out and you'll say, no, no, no. That's taking away worship from Jesus. He is splendid. He's too good. He's too glorious. And so I'll kick it out. What I'm trying to say is the power of lawlessness is constantly not just kicked out, but replaced so long as you see Jesus as good and loving as great and powerful, gracious and forgiving, or glorious and worthy of worship. The man of lawlessness puts himself in the center of the temple, and it's important to kind of close with this idea in our minds. Because he wants to receive worship, he wants to sit at the center of the temple. The center of the temple was the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies is the, um, well, the law. So it makes sense that the man of lawlessness would sit in the center of the temple. And in receiving worship, he's trying to replace the law. That's why he's the man of lawlessness. But also in the Holy of Holies is um, the mercy seat. So there's a wooden box. And uh, in the Holy of Holies, there's a wooden box with the law, the tablets that Moses brought down from the mount. And uh, over that box is a golden slab. And then once a year, to atone for, to pay for the sin of all of Israel, the high priest would come in and shed the sacrificed blood over the mercy seat. And in a sense, God is saying, if you put the sacrifice of someone else's life on the mercy seat, then I'll be able to meet with you. We'll have a reconciled relationship. So God, in, you know, I don't know when you came up with the plan. Eternity passed. Set along a story where in the Holy of Holies, the main message to God's people was through the shedding of blood and the sacrificial love of uh, someone giving their life, we will all be open to having a relationship with God. 
will be able to look at Jesus in, in the day of the Lord, and instead of seeing him as wrathful, we'll see him as splendid. Well, it makes sense now that the man of lawlessness is trying to replace that very thing. But the only problem is the man of lawlessness in receiving worship is constantly trying to say what every idol says, your life for mine. You give up your worship to me. Every act of evil is constantly saying that. But the opposite is true. Embedded in the history of Israel, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that the shedding of blood, the sacrificial loving offering will atone for the people, my life for you. In the end, every single act of love that's ever moved your heart, that's ever brought you to tears, that's ever changed your life, is all someone saying, I'm willing to give up part of my life for you. Every time you helped your friend move, every time you said a kind word, it took thought, it took time, that's an act of love that is essentially sacrificial and atoning my life for yours. Every time a mom takes care of their kids and there's day after day of taking care of those dang kids and all of a sudden they turn into 12-year-olds that forgot all the things you did for them. And it's all year after year of my life for you. Every loving thing that ever changed your life was someone sacrificially loving you by saying my life for you. But every idol that creeps in is constantly trying to trick us to say, give yourself up for me. But it doesn't deliver. In the end, we have to be the kind of Christians that find our splendor in Jesus Christ as the ultimate sacrifice and setting our hope in the future splendor of his coming. And anything that tempts to take us off that track, takes away from the worship that Jesus is due, diminishes his greatness, questions his goodness, the answer, the antidote to lawlessness is the cross of Jesus Christ. To say, look at the splendor of the cross. Look at what he's done for us. Look at the forgiveness that he offered and look at what he gave. Look at Christ's blood being sprinkled over the mercy seat, so to speak, so that we can be atoned for, so that we can have a relationship with God. And to the extent we find our splendor and our identity in that new life we have in Christ, nothing lawless, nothing tempting will pull us off of that. My, pr my prayer is not that we become weirdly opinionated Christians about the end times or that every new idea that creeps into the thing, you'll go, the man of lawlessness, get it out of my sight, you know. Uh, my hope is that we're just so good at rejoicing in what we have in Jesus that any false teaching, any random other idea that comes in, we'll be able to put it in perspective and never diminish what Jesus is due. Let's pray.